For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, why your retro gaming collection could make you rich. Some big news about Streets of Rage 4. And we get the inside story on the Budget Legends Mastertronic. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 183. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. Me, Joe Fox. Me, Adam Spring. And Rebecca Spring. What is going on? We're like the so solid crew of retro gaming all of a sudden. <laughs> and there's even a woman in the room. Yeah. <laughs> this is unheard of on a retro gaming podcast. Now, uh, welcome along to this week's show. We do have some guests in the studio. Now, if you're listening, I think you were on about two or three weeks ago, actually. I was, yeah. yeah on Skype all the way from Atlanta. I know. And now I'm here, physically here. That's how much I love this show. Yeah. <laughs> Travel across the Atlantic to be here. Now, Adam does a show um, called Remotely Interested with Ravi, which is, um, we talked about it when you were last on. We did. A podcast about all things kind of technology and science related lots of stuff but you're over in the UK for a couple of days staying with Ravi so he thought you know he's going to make you work for your stay why not <laughs> why not eh? I'll turn up I'll do whatever because you are a big retro gaming fan uh, as well. yeah, I, yeah I am I kind of live it like you guys <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh, we're going to have a little bit of a chat about this week's news stories in just a minute and I'm going to get the inside story on a company that I mean anyone who grew up in Britain in the 80s there was one company that whenever you saw their games on a Saturday and you went to the local shop, you know, a couple of quid in your pocket, it would be the one game that you could probably afford on the shelf. And that was a game by Mastertronic. Now, they had this thing called the 199 range. Do you remember that, Adam? I do, actually, yeah. 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 And they were like, well, as, as a title would suggest, £1.99. And a lot of other games then, you know, were, were edging about 5 or, or £10. So every kid had Mastertronic games. But bizarrely, even though they were such a big company, not much is written about them at all anymore. I think yeah. maybe because a lot of the people who were involved in it have passed away since. But today, I've tracked down a guy called Anthony Gutier. Now, he's actually got a really good website all about Mastertronic, and like the only one out there that gives the kind of definitive history. And he worked at the company. I mean, he was financial controller. He was um, a systems manager. But because it was such a small company at the time, he kind of did lots of different stuff. So we're going to get the story behind one of Britain's most legendary gaming companies in the 80s, Mastertronic, on the way in around 15 minutes from now. And also we need to talk about some, uh, some stories, including how you could get rich off your retro gaming collection. That's always been the dream, hasn't it? Don't tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> and Streets of Rage 4 as well. More on that now. Before we get into it, let's give a big thank you to the people who make the Retro Hour podcast possible because running this show each week does have its expenses. So listen, any amount that you can donate to the podcast into the running of it is massively appreciated. And for donating any amount via PayPal, you will find your place in the very prestigious... I know you want to do the drum roll. Oh, bloody hell, here we go. Go on. <laughs> here we go. No one does it like you, Jim. <laughs> Retro Hour Hall of Fame, just like this week, Stuart Brand. Gary Hever. William Jones. And Christian Deich, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, we've got to give some big love to our sponsor as well. One of our favourite sponsors, Bitmap Books. Now, last week we were talking about that brilliant Sega book celebrating the art of the Sega Master System. This week, I give this book to you to have a look at, Joe, because you're a big RPG fan. Dan's hooked me up with a CRPG book. Now, I need to take a deep breath for what's going to be my Christmas appeal for my mum 
right. to buy me this book. <laughs> is she a big, big listener to the Retro Hour, Mum? She's a big listener. Okay. She's a number one fan, my mum. <laughs> Every week she comes at me with something. But these books get, get, get keep getting better and better. We've got CRPG book by Bitmap Books. Now this one, we've got over 500 pages of the complete history of RPGs, essentially from tabletop paper, Dungeons & Dragons, all the way to 2018 with the modern day gaming and literally it kind of breaks it down into how it kind of got into digital gaming and then like a five pretty much like a five-year breakdown from 1975 right all the way up to modern day and for me just kind of like reading through it last night is really really interesting then you've got about 400 or so game reviews in there so it's just an amazing book and once again i said it last week the build quality on it as well yeah you know really really makes it worth it uh, adam was saying earlier on just kind of looking at it straight away like how beautiful the book is um, so I'm just in love with these books personally. I was looking through the kind of chapters and some of the headings and titles are amazing because it's talking about like the periods of when 3D started to come in and when people started to experiment. You know, they'll be like about Ultima and then you'll be getting into the Ultima online stuff as well. So as the technology kind of grew, so did RPG and this shows that progression. I think it's cool as well because last week we talked about the, the visual compendium books were about the art. Yeah. But this is, um, it actually reviews over 400 games. Yeah, so this one's got, it's a lot more text-based but there is still obviously all your images in there and everything to, you know, for the simpletons like myself. Um, but yeah, this one is, is quite text-heavy but at the same time I guess that kind of goes hand in hand with yeah. RPGs so... It's very nice. Well, this is called The CRPG Book, A Guide to Computer Role-Playing Games. If you're a big fan of that genre, you've got to check this out now. If you've got a second right now, honestly, open a new tab in your browser, head on to this website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. Have a look at the book, see what you think of it. You'll be really helping out the podcast by doing that as well. And show some love to our sponsor because, you know, Bitmap Books has been a big supporter of our show and they do wonderful products as well. So it's great to have them on board. bitmapbooks.co.uk. Right then, let's get into this week's stories. Anybody got rich from the retro gaming collection yet? I'd like to think I will do one day, if I can uh, bring myself to, to uh, part with them. Anybody gone bust? <laughs> I, my wife's right next to me, so I'm not yeah. saying anything. I'm planning on using his collection to pay for his funeral. <laughs> Spot on. I Finding think my wife would do the same. <laughs> I, I, I've got a thing in my head where I'm thinking, are these the antiques of the future? Yeah. Or are they complete trash? And is this media going to be irrelevant? And I, I have a big CD collection, and I know that my discs are going to rot. And... Yeah, I don't know. Do I sell it for profit? But I enjoy collecting, so... Yeah. Well, it's funny you mention that because you're not the only one who thinks this may have a future. There is an article here on the Eastern Daily Press, and I always love it when mainstream media talk about retro gaming because it feels like, you know... Like your grandma doing it or something, doesn't yeah, it? Or very it's, naive. It's a bit of a, yeah, very naive. That's the way I would describe it, yeah. <laughs> well, they're talking about a story that we'll get into in a minute. Um, they say here, you know, with one copy of Atari 2600's Extraterrestrials currently being sold on eBay. They're talking about, like, the company was called Atari 2600. Um, and they've got an interview <laughs> with a guy here called Edward Jackman, and he owns a video game shop called Last Level Games. And they're talking here about how people are actually investing, who have no interest in retro gaming, actually investing in it, as a way to make money. I think that's foolish. I think, yeah. that, I think that's very like Bitcoin. You know, it's very risky. But there are some items that are good. If you're going to invest, invest in hardware. That's what I say, because that's going to be the rare stuff. Well, it's like that New, York, uh, New Yorker article from a few years ago where a guy, his grandmother left him like 300 grand 
and he put 150 into shares and 150 into two Neo Geo games. Right. And he made more money off of the Neo Geo games than he did actually his wow. shares. <laughs> so, See, yeah. Neo Geo is a different story, though, in it my is. opinion. It is. That's a different level, that is. <laughs> but you know, they've listed on here valuable yeah. games and consoles, and they've done quite a good list, actually. They've got like Conker's Bad Fur Day, CD32, 3DO. You know, this stuff does actually get good money. You know, it's funny they mentioned Conker's Bad Fur Day we did a whole panel about that recently. Yeah. Should have asked for a few copies. 160 quid is apparently the average. Yeah, because it was one of those later yeah. carts. But it's always the rare cases and the odd ones. Like, I I bought um, a copy of Lotus Trilogy and I bought that for £40. I sold it on eBay and it got into a crazy bidding war and it went for 800 What? So <laughs> I ended up buying your wedding present with the profits <laughs> from that, mate. <laughs> this is Lotus on the Amiga. Yeah, for okay. the CD32. Right. And well, I'm, I'm chatting to Sean Southern next week, so I'll, uh, I'll thank him. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> worth what people will pay if, yeah. you know, at the time. Well, let's be honest here then. I, I think it might be interesting if... I know your wife's next to you, Adam, so uh, <laughs> it's now for the slap around the head. I'm still supportive when I can. <laughs> well, what's the most we've all spent on a retro game then? What about, what about you, Adam? So, with me, it's kind of... It's more about the hunt. Yeah. So, I don't really like... It's not that I don't necessarily want to pay it. It's more the fact that it's like, is it really going to have value? So, for example, Atari Carts at the moment, I'd like a copy of it, but it seems to be one of those games where there's enough hype around it now where it's just going up and it's getting silly. Yeah. You know, I think it's like around about three or $400 now. And I think having moved countries, it's really interesting what people value. So, for example, the first thing I noticed when I moved to the US is like nobody knew about Amiga that much. You know, and the main story there was all about video editing. And then you start talking to people about it. And then in Atlanta, for example, Alan, who you met when you came yeah. over, Ravi, yeah. he paid, I think it was almost like a grand and a half for an Amiga 1200. And I was like, what? You know, you right. know yeah. it's, just, it's like, well, why? You know, well, because I can. It's like, well, okay, fair enough. So, I mean, for me, probably the most I've spent was, so the best buy I had was Rayman for $45. Is that on the Jaguar? The, on the Jaguar, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the most I probably spent was about 70 on a Neo Geo Pocket game because okay. I had a Neo Geo po Pocket and I needed to try it out. So I was like, eh, I want Capcom, SNK, full box, let's get it. So that's probably the most. I say with Rebecca right next to me right now. Um, Rebecca, you can probably triple all really yeah. I'll, I'll just step out of the room for a minute. But I mean, it's like with the Jag stuff, right? I mean, I had one when I was a kid, so all of my stuff is original. And yeah. I just by accident kept all the boxes in the attic. So when I moved to the US, I just took it with me. So everything's mint, but it's like I didn't pay like eight or 900 quid or whatever it's going for now, you know? It's, it's, it's weird to me in a way sometimes. What about you? I, I've gone to 200. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm a CD32 collector and I need certain titles to be in boxes and in nice condition. <laughs> to look at on your shelf. Yeah, well, it's the console that I was never allowed to get because my dad said it was too crap. He said get a PlayStation. So. <laughs> to be fair, there's some good advice yeah, in that, I think. It's like defying <laughs> dad. Wise yeah. words there. Go on then, Joe. Um, I've got to agree with Adam, really. Mm. Um, in it for the hunt. Uh, I've got a lot, a lot of stuff from when I was a child as well. A lot of stuff from like my mum's garage and stuff like that. So I've got a lot of stuff now which is worth a lot, which I bought for like hardly anything back in the day. So the, the big one that comes to my mind is uh, Castlevania New Generations yeah. or Bloodlines, whatever you want to call it, for uh, the Sega Mega Drive. I got that for four pounds. Uh, about fifteen years ago, which goes for about two hundred pounds now. Yeah. But um, I have not really spent. I've got a lot of games, but I've not really spent anything in the like kind of hundreds. I've probably got a few around the seventy, eighty pound mark. I've got a lot of those kind of games, a lot of Sega Saturn games like Die Hard Arcade, Story Four Two. It was cheaper uh, for me to get new um, new generation from Italy 
Oh, and really? And it sent to the US than it was to actually get bloodlines. And, and how much was that? Uh, it was around about, I think, 50 quid UK. Oh, really? Right. Okay, so, that's yeah. really good. Yeah. Really, really, yeah. really good. I think for me it was Atari Cards. I think I played about 160 quid for it, which, you know, might sound a lot for a, a pretty crappy old racing game on the Jaguar, but like you said, it's gone up a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah and, then, got it. and then what's the other one as well? The one that they did limited run towards the end of the 90s that's now like... Two and a half grand or something. Yeah, you, I'm trying that's to Battlesphere, not Battlesphere. The follow-up um, to that wasn't it? Was you know the one. Yeah. The, you know yeah. the one. I mean, the flying game. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. We actually spent money on a special train ride to get to that video to game store. Which one? When we were on the adventure to look for things in Italy. Oh, you're so right. like, opening yeah. a whole different that, book. There. <laughs> you've got that. You've got that extra bit. You know, in terms of the hunt. Actually, that's where I have fun with it. I'm not a huge gamer, but mm. I enjoy the hunt just as much. Yeah. Because. Yeah. You've got that extra value in finding something that's lost in some random basket at the bottom of yeah, a yeah. weird shelf somewhere. Well, to me, it's about the people as well, right? It's about the community. I think that's a key thing. And that's a problem that's lost with people that are scalpers or all their thing is about money. It's yeah. not. It's about the people and the community that's involved with it, you know? So, Do we all feel better now having got the confessions out there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyone got $90,000 burning a hole in their pocket? Yeah, um, I actually recently bought this for... Uh, no, I'm joking. Joe <laughs> 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 will get mugged next time we're a player. Well, this is a game. We did briefly mention it before. Extraterrestrials on the Atari 2600. Apparently this went on eBay, um, went on sale for $90,000. Now, apparently this was a game that came out in 1984, an extremely limited run, and no one even really heard about it until well, 2011. it was a hundred run, and it right. was in Canada only. It just kind of came out around the town it came out in, or something, where, the, where yeah. it was developed, didn't it? Yeah. But they've actually got the ROM, and they're, they're redoing runs of limited runs of special editions. So they've done a run of a hundred of the new special editions, but this is from that original... 100 right. run and it's called extra terrestrials not, not to be confused with the e. one that yeah. cracks the video <laughs> yeah. games industry yeah um, apparently the, the auction someone like scammed the seller so he's relisted it again so it's running again at the moment so might have finished by the time this comes out if you did buy it do let us know and, well uh, apparently a copy surfaced a couple of years ago and that sold for about 20,000 right so wow. it'd be interesting to see if it's really jumped up that much. But I these are going to last definitely. as well, aren't they, carts? Because they haven't got any kind of rotting... It, you know, Ravi, is a, he's a, obsessed with bit rot. <laughs> like, every time I see him, he goes... <laughs> if you have that twice in one show. <laughs> Good to be cautious there, Ravi. Yeah, Laser disc owners, watch out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing worse than when you open your games you haven't looked at for like 10 years and it's just yeah, powder that's fallen off the back of the CD. You're like, oh, no... Well, Streets of Rage 4 is obviously something that we're all excited for, um, particularly you, Joe. I know you're a massive fan of Streets of Rage series. I am, I am. Excited to see that the original composer is returning. Yeah, because um, we covered this before, didn't we, the animators? Yeah, when it was yeah. first announced. Uh, uh, we were a bit unsure about the graphics and how it was going to go back then. I mean, yeah. we've got a few more trailers and stuff now, and it does look pretty... What's the word I'm looking for? Like... It's quite, I think, comic book kind of style. Yeah, it's got a real comic book style and they're using the exact same enemies. Obviously, they've redone the yeah. graphics and the sprites and stuff, but it's good to see that it's the same guys you're fighting and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, back to the music. I'm hoping it, I'm really kind of hoping it's got that like electronic 16-bit feel to it, but we'll see. Well, that's what made the game, right? I mean, yeah. that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what made the game for so many people. Because as you pointed out, he went on tour. Yeah, like a couple of years ago, didn't he? And people yep. went to go see him, to see him play the original music, not new music and stuff. So, I think it would be nice to hear remixes of the original music and kind of like homages to original music, but not like 
I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm Make skeptical. it its own thing, but yeah. be, be true to what it was back yeah, in the day. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Maybe we'll get a vinyl release yeah. as well, because Streets of Rage is always the one that people want on yeah. vinyl straight away. Yeah. I think you made a good point there as well. It's quite a hard balancing act, isn't it? It's like, it is. Because when you make a remake of a game, you are, you're kind of messing with people's memories in a way, I guess. Yeah, you are. So you don't want to ruin it, but you want to enhance it. It's, yeah, it's a difficult balance. And I mean, that period is interesting as well, because it's kind of that golden era, right? Yeah. So everybody has like a precious sort of memory about it, really. It's interesting. Yeah, so if you want to check out more about that, like I said, there is a few new trailers as well. It's getting a very mixed reaction, the look of it, because I think it is a bit of an acquired kind of taste, that kind of comic book art style. Yeah. I quite like it. I, I quite like At first, I wasn't convinced, but Ravi's got it up right now on his computer, and it looks it looks quite nice. I'm, def- I'm obviously going to buy it. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a sucker. It, it, feels a bit, <laughs> it feels a bit different as well, like the edges. It's, it feels like they've kind of got black felt-tip borders on them. Yeah, <laughs> which is like a kind of cool style, but they pop out a bit more, you know. It was that the end, um, the Street Fighter remake that came out on the Switch. That's the kind Ultra. of got to, yeah, yeah, that's Street Fighter yeah. Ultra. Yeah. yeah, the graphical style's quite similar. So, yeah, I quite like it. Um, we're all going to buy it when it comes out. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we get into this week's interview, just time to talk about the uh, this cool little system that if you you hear us talk about these kind of DIY consoles and handhelds and that kind of thing, this is something that's made for people that want one of those but I've got absolutely zero electronic skills. So me, essentially. So this is Clockworks Modular Game Shell, a DIY retro gaming handheld. Yeah, and this is for the Clockwork Pi, which is actually like a kind of retro pie, uh, Raspberry Pi board, yeah. but it's quad-core, which is pretty impressive. So it's going to have some big kick with this board. And it seems that this is a custom board that you put in, and then it's kind of a modular kit, so kind of build it yourself it's pretty cool looks but, like good fun as well no soldering required it's modular yeah yeah like, like making lego yeah yeah <laughs> i was gonna say it looks like like pop out like warhammer or like airfix you yeah. know like where you just <laughs> pop them out and clip them together it's cool because i mean it, like it says at the beginning of this article and stuff it goes modular games consoles are great in theory until you're sitting up soldering at three in the morning which um is true yeah. if you just want a quick blaster i think you probably get something like this for the fun of putting it together and making it i guess I always used to get these things, mess one up, and then have to get it again because my soldering skills were so bad. So <laughs> putting it together, just clicking it together could be really nice. And that's a customer that they want. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned there, actually, I was watching, um, th- there's a few videos on YouTube about repairs and stuff. I was watching one the other day. And you know these hot air guns that they use for desoldering components? I went on eBay and bought one of those for like 60 quid. So my idea is, because I've got that many old systems, and they all need recapping. And I am terrible at soldering and trying to unsolder these little like capacitors and stuff. I always make a bodge job of it. So I thought, right, I'm going to actually sit down, dedicate a weekend to learning how to do it properly. Knowing you, you're going to take it all apart, have it all on the kitchen table, and then you're just going to go to the pub. <laughs> oh, screw this. <laughs> Absolutely what will happen, Joe, but yeah. I'll train you up, Dan. I'm actually pretty good at it. Are you? Yeah. Okay, cool. There you go. So later on, soldering irons coming out after a few beers. American style. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you for checking out the news this week. Everything we've talked about, I will put in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Save Googling all the stories. We'll put them in there every week. Please keep your iTunes reviews coming in as well. They're really useful and got a few nice Facebook reviews over the last few days as well which is really awesome. cool. So if you want to keep those coming in, they do really help out the podcast, as does our sponsors. Now, just before we get into our chat about Mastertronic, we want to say a big thank you to The Economist who are back on board. Now, The Economist are 
such a big supporter of this podcast and been regular sponsors of the show for the last year or so. And the thing about them is The Economist is a well-established title here in Britain. I mean, it's been going for over 170 years. And in this day and age where you get so much false news on social media and websites, it's really important to have a source that you can trust. And even though they're called The Economist, I mean, these days they do cover a lot more than just the economy and finance, including world politics, business, science, technology, and even video games as well. Now, what have you found in there this week? I found a really interesting piece, actually, and it's kind of about how the Communist Party of China, because a lot of people kind of assume that China's not communist, but it is still ran by the Communist Party of China. And um, they're kind of having an assault on some gaming companies. Now, there's te- this company called Tencent, which is an investment firm. Yeah. The Communist Party has actually put a froze on them, creating new games without any explanation. There was also a version of PUBG, which was a, you know, a battleground, player unknown battlegrounds. And the Chinese Communist Party made their own version of player unknown right. battlegrounds <laughs> and tried to encourage citizens to play with that. And it's very interesting seeing how they're now getting involved with technology especially with stuff like the social points system that we've discussed before coming in China, but um, how it's going to affect the esports industry as well if the parties start getting involved with stuff like that because there's 200 million fans of esports in China. That is massive, you know, and they've got a national team as well and they always win gold at events. So we see what's going to happen with this and this kind of uh, war because they're actually... uh, referring to some of these games as electronic opium. Yeah, that addictive. Yeah. <laughs> well, these are the kind of things you can read about in The Economist. I mean, it covers so much stuff. If you're the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to find out things, have a look at it. Now, we've actually done a little deal with The Economist where you can get a copy through the post and check it out for yourself. So if you live in the UK, to get your own free print copy of The Economist, all you have to do is text the word retro and send it to 78070. So do that from your phone right now. Retro to 78070 and get your own free print copy of The Economist, The Smart Guide to the Forces Change in Your World. Right then, we'll have more news in next week's show and right now, let's get the story of 80s budget legends Anthony Gucci are talking about Mastertronic. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is my pleasure to welcome this week's special guest. Now, today we're going to be talking about a company who were so influential here in the video games industry in Britain back in the 80s in particular because, I mean, you know, for kids like me who didn't get a lot of pocket money growing up, these were the games that you could go to your local shop and you could actually afford to buy. So today we're joined by Anthony Guter, who um, used to work at Mastertronic back in the day. So uh, welcome to the show, Anthony. A pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, let's just, I mean, to get a little bit of background about you, I mean, how did you first get into computers and video games? Um, I got into computers um, through, through my job. I was, I was an accountant. Uh, I was working for a large uh, American company at the European head office. We were spending a fortune on time-sharing in order to run financial models. And the Apple II had just been launched with VisiCalc. And I had a look at that, and I realized that we could do everything we were doing on this very expensive timeshare system. And a lot more besides. And I put in an application to my bosses and said, this looks really good. And they said, what's a microcomputer? And hummed and hard, and eventually let me have one. And I went from there. And it was unusual in those days for anyone in finance to take an interest in computers or in spreadsheets. So that, that kind of got me in ahead of the game. And then I, I, kind of, I, I was a bit of an ambassador for micros. They gradually spread throughout the group. People started to use them. I worked in one of the main divisions of this company, 
in Swindon where they had a, we had 100 retail branches and there was a mainframe computer which did all the sales and uh, stock control and it was a separate department with people who looked down on micros as toys and had nothing to do with this, wouldn't help us and weren't interested in what we were doing in finance. So we were developing computer models of, of the company and using it for forecasting and so on. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with the mainstream computing. So we had to learn everything ourselves. There was no one to ask. And that was a, it was a good learning experience. And on the back of that Apple II, I started to get into games. So I was going to say, I mean, around that time, you're talking about, you know, the, the birth of microcomputers yes. as well. I mean, you're kind of treading a path that no one else has tread before. So, I mean, it, was it kind of, you know, making it up as you went along? You I had imagine? to learn everything yourself. Yeah. Um, there was no internet, of course, which, which might horrify some of your listeners. <laughs> um, if you wanted to find out something, you had to read the manual yeah. or RTFM, which some of your listeners may recognize. <laughs> uh, there were magazines, of course. But the magazines were only of limited help because if you didn't find your particular problem, you were stuck. And, you know, one, one, I had the apple and I read the manuals and I, and I tried to understand how it worked. And I did things that, that most people with computers wouldn't know how to do. I, you know, very early on, I realized it wasn't, the memory wasn't sufficient. So I bought what was called a 16K memory card and inserted it into the computer. So I actually took the computer, you know, took the lid off and put this, this circuit board in. And I got printers and configured the printers and got various bits of software and learned how to use disk drives. And I know it tr sounds terribly trivial, but that was the sort of thing most people weren't doing at that time. And out, out of all the other accountants in the group, I was probably the only one who had that sort of experience. Well, along with the rise of microcomputers, I mean, can't, you know, you did mention that you got into games as well. I, I know the arcade was kind of emerging in that yeah. kind of era too. I mean, were you much of an arcade-goer? No, not seriously. I, I liked playing arcade games. I was a bit old for them, even, mm. even then. So, uh, but I did enjoy them. And on the Apple, the Apple II came with two games written in Apple Basic. And I printed out the, the code listings and tried to work out how they worked. So I taught myself a little bit of programming that way. What kind of games were you into then? Nothing anybody would have heard of. I mean, the, the Apple games that came with the Apple II, one called Lemonade Stand, which I think you can still get, uh, for emulators, and a very early version of Breakout using the Apple Paddles. Football Manager came out around about that time on the Spectrum, uh, Kevin Toms' game, which I read reviews of, and I tried to do a little bit of, see if I could program my own version of it, very clumsily, to simulate what would happen if, you know, with footballers moving across the pitch, but not, in, not visually, just to see if I could work out as a series of equations how it would work, and I tried to program a bit of Monopoly, and it was all just to learn programming more than play games. Um, the games, most of the games we had available were, were, that were, weren't very, weren't that interesting, and they were all American. And I was aware of the spectrum, but I thought it was, it was rubbish, and I hope I don't want to offend any of your, list, your retro <laughs> listeners. I, I didn't like the look of it. I didn't like the look of the keyboard. I was a touch typist, and I couldn't get my hands on the keyboard anyway, so I thought it was absolutely useless. So I stayed away from the conventional micros. The Apple II was fine. It was a proper business machine. Well, let's talk about your move to um, Mastertronic then, because you, you started working there in 1985, was yeah. that correct? Well, I was working in, in this American uh, automotive parts company, a very large worldwide business. And my career wasn't going where I wanted it to go, and they didn't think uh, it was going where they wanted it to go. I started looking around to do something else. And I just saw an ad in the Financial Times one day that talked about a computer games company looking for somebody and I applied for that, and much to my surprise, I got it. So that was Mastertronic. 
I was reading um, an interview interview with you on um, Retro Video Gamers website, and they mentioned in there that there was um, <laughs> they, they told you about this brand new product that was coming out in your interview that was too secret to yes. tell you about. I mean, did you find out what that was eventually? Oh yes, um, I had when they interviewed me. They were they, they talked about the you know the computer game side, and then they got very secretive and said we've got this other product. And I was I was interviewed by the the three main directors. Uh, of, of the company, the guys who'd set it up. Uh, and they said, well, we can't tell you anything about it. You know, it's all confidential. Uh, and then I started with the company, and they were still a bit cagey. And then after a couple of weeks, they said, oh, well, we'll tell you what this is all about. And this was a, a device that would transmit a signal from a video player to any, around, the, around your house, to any TV in the house, rather than just the one it was plugged into. Um, and they called it Video Plus, I think. And it used a frequency, a wireless frequency that was reserved by the Department of Trade, which is why it never went on sale. I didn't know Mastertronic were even in the hardware business. Right? They no, weren't. Yeah. Um, Mastertronic was started by guys who knew about video, as, as you, you may have picked up from my website. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, um, one of the directors, Martin Alper, and his colleague Terry Medway ran a video shop. And it was, that, was their, that was their background, not computers at all. So, but they did, you know, they understood the, the, the video market and the, obviously, presumably, the video accessories market. And they weren't really bothered about games. They just were looking for business outlets. And they'd come across this device, I think, must be in America, and thought, yeah, we can flog that in Britain. It was booked to appear at a, a big trade show in, uh, I think, Olympia in September of 85. And this was going to be, on the, this was going to be the center of the Mastertronic stand. Uh, and, and then, as I say, the Department of Trade put their foot down, said, you can't put this on sale. It's using a wireless frequency you're not allowed to use. That was the end of that. But other devices doing something like that did appear soon after. I mean, talking about the founders of Mastertronic, it's quite interesting you mentioned then, you know, that they, they had a, a background in video, Martin and Terry, because thinking about, you know, that era, a lot of games companies were set up by programmers because they wanted to have a platform to release their games or games they liked. I mean, having a team of, of guys who weren't that into video games or weren't programmers makes it quite a unique company, really. Well, in a way, but there were a number of large companies that set up video games divisions. Um, for example, Mirasoft, uh, which was run by uh, Robert Maxwell's son, uh, Kevin. You had Virgin Games, mm-hmm. um, which was set up by people who were not, well, they were interested in, 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 in computer programming, but not in games specifically uh, when it was first set up. Um, and Thorny MI had a, an outlook called Creative Sparks. Uh, there were quite a few other, you know, quite a few large companies, BT, of course, uh, with Firebird. So you'd started off with, with, with obviously, executive of one of these companies saying, oh, video games look like uh, an interesting business. Let's start, let's get into this business. Let's find someone to run it for us. So the people making those decisions probably weren't interested in computer games per se. They just thought it was a business they could get into. But I agree, the vast majority of, of companies of people trying to sell games in 1984-85 were programmers and enthusiasts and a huge number of, I don't know how you describe them, um, entrepreneurs. If you look at the magazines of the time, they are full of adverts from people begging for programmers to send them their games. Well, when you got there to Mastertronic, then what were your initial impressions of the company? Because, I mean, it was quite young then. They'd only been around about two years at that stage. Oh, less than that. They, yeah. they started trading in, in April 84, and I think they tried out the market for a few months earlier. Um, and the, the guys who were running it, the three directors who were actively running it, were not even being paid a salary at that time. Um, they all had sort of, were gradually giving up their other activities, and they just about reached the point of deciding they were going to specialise in Mastertronic at the time that I started. 
so it was a bit chaotic. Um, they had, had got to the point, got over the initial problem, which was that nobody took budget games seriously. So if you look at the press in 1984, um, everybody in the industry was rubbishing budget games and saying they, they must be garbage, you know, don't bother, it's not going to last. Um, and there were a few people trying to imitate us who didn't do very well. And none of the big retailers were quite knew what to do with budget because they didn't make much money out of it. So they didn't want to give us a lot of shelf space. That was the biggest problem. You had to convince them that we would get the volume. And but by the time I joined, that was beginning to happen. You know, we were starting to sell games in really decent quantities. And your typical, you know, full price game might sell uh, a thousand or two. And we were starting to, you know, do games that were selling of forty or fifty thousand. So suddenly, commercial buyers from people like Boots got very interested. Well, you know, as a kid in the 80s, we, we were talking before we started recording, before that the, the 199 range, I remember every kid at school would go out on weekends and buy those games. And, you know, pricing games at that point was a, a bit of a genius move, really. I mean, what was kind of the process behind that and how did it work well, coming up with that plan? You, no, ask yourself the question this. Why was the average game in 1983 priced at 795 Because everybody knew that they came on cheap bits of tape that only cost 30p to duplicate. So you have to go back from that. And the industry had convinced itself that you had to have a huge margin built in in order to pay for the development costs. And they had got into this cycle of sales not being very high because not many people could afford them. And therefore, you had to have high prices. They also were locked into a cycle of advertising uh, in all the magazines and so on. And that was quite expensive. And we didn't advertise. We took with you, I think, I don't know whether anybody had worked it out. We just, you know, it wasn't worth it. We couldn't afford it. Much better to get the games out there as far, in as many outlets as possible and let customers um, see them. And that did work because, like I said, you know, everyone did buy those games because it was the, yes. you know, for kids it was an impulse buy at that price because that was like, you know, your weekly pocket. That's right. Was, but the problem we had was getting the games in front of the customer in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because it's not obvious how you do that. Um, if you start up, anybody can start a games company in those days. You just, you know, if you could, once you've got some code, you go to a tape duplicator and say, you know, make me a couple of thousand of these. You go to a printer and you print you some inlays and you've got a box of games, but then they're sitting in your, in your house. What do you do with them? How do you get people to buy them? And this was, this was for most people, this was a terrible problem. For Mastertronic, they, they had this network of dealers from the video business that they were all familiar with. So they started off getting them into video shops and into other shops like news agents that used to sell videos as well. And this is where, you, you know, if you, if you remember, the, you may be a bit young for this, but the, in the beginning of the 80s with the videotape boom, videos were being sold everywhere um, as a sideline. And they were sold in, you know, in, in news agents and in garages and, um, and, and in small shops. And anyone could tell, again, you know, videos are very easy to sell. You just stack them on a shelf and the customer picks them up and you don't have to sell them because... The customer says, yeah, I like the look of that title and buys it. So it's very easy for retailers to sell them. And then computer games kind of filled the same niche. Yeah, because I remember seeing Mastertronic games at, like, you know, service stations on the motorway yeah. and yeah, all kinds of places. Yeah, but in order to get, them to, the, to get them out there, you had to have a network of people who would actually take them to those garages in the first place. And because of the video business, particularly that I, that, uh, I think Frank Herman was in, as well as Martin and Terry, they had that network. And I've, I've spoken about this uh, in interviews um, you know, the guy called Richard Bealby was very important, who, who used to come into our warehouse, pick up bulk stock. And then he, would, he and his wife worked on this, and they had this network of distributors, and they would send out a few games to each distributor, and the distributors would go around to the garages and the news agents and the tobacconists. And uh, that's how the, you know, the stuff got out there in the early days, because the large established uh, wholesalers wouldn't touch us. Again, they, they didn't think there was enough profit in it for them. 
Yeah, and I know that Richard was quite well known around um, here where we recorded the show as well because he was uh, he's quite famous in the world of cricket, wasn't he? Oh, he played for Notts, yeah. I think, if I remember rightly. Uh, yes. Um, so it was, it was, it was, that was the advantage that we had, that we, that we had this distribution. I've always sort of emphasised this, that it was anybody could do a computer games company in those days. The problem was getting the games on the shelves, and that's what stumped most of the, the would-be, the small companies starting up. It was all right. So, you know, once you were established and you had a name, yes, you could go to a wholesaler and say, this last title did 2,000 copies, so how many would you like this time around? And they'll take it. But if you're just starting up, it, you, can't, you, know, you can't do that and you've got no credibility. It's interesting as well that, I mean, you mentioned companies like Boots selling video games, which today is like, you know, unthinkable that you'd walk into Boots oh, and yeah, see Boots, video games. Oh, yeah, Boots, Boots used to sell all sorts of things. They yeah. used to sell cameras and electronics. Um, but, you know, um, Smith, of course, sold them. Woolworths sold them. Um, once the retailers understood how it worked, and we made it easy for them because of the way we dealt with them, we, uh, particularly we had sale and return. And if you tell a guy, you know, here's 100 tapes, but if you don't sell them, we'll take them back and give you another 100, they, well, they love you because there's no risk for them. All they have to do is decide if, if it's worth allocating you a bit of shelf space. And were the majority of games profitable, I imagine? I mean, did you ever yeah. lose any money on games? Uh, later on, we probably did. But no, in the early days, you didn't because um, if you could sell... Oh, I can't, I'm not going to do the sums in my head now, but you only had to sell a few thousand to cover the costs of not only making the game, but also giving the author a reasonable advance and paying for the cover artwork and, you know, the actual overheads of, of getting the games through your system and out into the high street. So, yeah, you didn't have to sell a huge quantity, um, but in order to make real money, you needed to sell, you know, 10 or 20,000. And we did that easily, almost every title. Because they didn't directly employ programmers, did they? No, we didn't need to. The most, I think the huge numbers of other people in the business didn't employ programmers. Didn't have to. Yeah, they were, you, could, you could buy uh, games, and you could either give people royalties or you could buy them outright, and, and uh, loads of people were doing that. So when you first started at Mastertronic, I mean, what was your kind of day-to-day role at that stage? I was taken on as a uh, financial controller, and it was a very small company, so I did just about everything. I did everything behind the scenes, um, which anyone in business would understand, but people who have not been in business will probably find incredibly boring to hear about. I mean, did you try and implement any changes when, when you started? I put in systems. They didn't have these, the systems they had were terrible, and I struggled with them, and I put in my own systems after a while, which made a big difference. And then we started to grow very rapidly, so it was just as well that everything was working. We, we, um, when I started, um, they had some ramshackle old computer systems for doing sales orders, and we had employed a young lady called Alison Beasley, who you may have heard of. Um, she now runs a very successful PR company. And she was taken on as quite a young, quite a young girl, I think she was just a school leaver. She was taken on to do PR, but she also did the inputting of our sales orders. And she was the only person who knew how to work this system. So every couple of days, I had to go to her and beg her to stop um, doing her, her main job of PR, which in those days meant whining and dining the uh, editors of computer magazines and you know would she please sit down at, at the desk and, and hammer put, get a few sales orders processed <laughs> um, and then we grew to the point that I started to take on people who were full-time sales operators and then we had several of them and then we had a department and we upgraded all the systems and uh, yeah it just sort of took off from that behind the scenes. <laughs> Well, you know, in those early days as well, one, um, one name that you'd always see on the, the loading screens of the games was, you know, Mr. Chip Software. Mm. Um, and also the Darling Brothers, I know, did some uh, games for Mastertronic in there, you know, the pre-Codemasters days. Were they kind of responsible for a lot of the, the early output then? Were they important? Absolutely vital, yeah, yeah. Mm. Because they, we, the, 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 when the company started, I think I wasn't there, obviously, at this, when it started. 
And I've asked people about this, but I've never really got a definitive story of what happened. My guess is that Frank in particular went around and bought up games from that are obviously reaching the end of their life and just relicensed them, um, bought some of them outright, and then found people who seem to be active in the market and said, we would like to do deals with you. And that was certainly, I think, how we got Mr. Chip and, and the Darlings who were just starting out. And the Darlings in particular which was, was still at school. And we, um, well, Mastertronic, well, they originally started in the offices of, in, in George Street, which was where Alan Charum's surveyor's practice was based. And Alan joined Mastertronic soon after it got started. Um, and then they moved to a block of flats in near Regent's Park. And Mastertronic was in one flat. And the Darlings either owned or leased a flat above in the same block. And uh, I've got this from Alison Beasley. So if you want verification, you might want to talk to her. Nice. But she says that, that the Darlings, you know, used to come off school at weekends, go to the flat and spend the entire weekend writing games. And then Mastertronic would publish them. Um, and that was, that was sort of how it, how it got started. They'd already had a few things published. Uh, and if you look at the computer magazines around 1983, you see something called Galactic Software, which was their trading style at the time. It's quite convenient that they were so close then. Yes, well, that's, it was all, yeah, uh, it was all very, uh, uh, we all lived very close together. I mean, this, was, this arrangement had more or less stopped by the time I started, and they'd got a bit more professional, and, you know, they couldn't wait to leave school so they could be full-time programmers. They were making real money out of it. I mean, was there many of um, that, that kind of thing going on at the time? I mean, did you get a lot of young programmers, like, calling into the offices and sending demos in and that kind of thing? We certainly did. It, later, a little later on, um, at the time I started, there was still a little bit of a credibility problem. And a lot of, I think, programmers were suspicious about where they're going to get paid because huge numbers of people have been ripped off by companies going bust. So they, people tended to want to deal with names that they thought they knew. Um, but we gradually built up relations with a number of individual programmers, you know, guys like David Jones, for example, and they they come in with the latest thing, and uh, somebody would look at it and say, "Yeah, that's great," and then we'd you know it would be on the be on the streets within a couple of weeks. Uh, and about a year later, it, it started to go mad, and people and because Mastronic became really well known, people started to send us games out of the blue, and then it became a question of wading through loads of stuff, most of which was rubbish, and they're deciding if there's anything worthwhile. I know they covered quite a lot of platforms as well. Um, I remember you walk into a shop, and they had that unique colour coding on the tape boxes, didn't they, for different platforms? Yes, I didn't realise it was unique until years afterwards. I just mm. assumed that's what everybody did. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I think a Spectrum was like, was that yellow, was it, the Spectrum games? I think was yellow, yeah. and 64 was, uh, was red. Um, yeah, um, this was all, the PR, the, sorry, the PR, the marketing side of the company was very well thought out, and they wanted all the games to look as though they had been professionally produced and all from the same outfit. And they put a lot of a lot of attention into that. Yeah, and they had those really, you know, the obviously distinctive logo and that kind of design logo, as well. And also the covers. I think a yeah. lot of the covers were really good. And we used um, an agency called called Words and Pictures, and they had uh, two excellent artists, uh, Mark Brady and a guy called and John Smythe. And uh, Mark Brady specialised in the science fiction style pictures of you know spaceships and battles and things, and uh, John Smythe did cartoony pictures. And they both have very recognisable styles, and I think that helped as well. Yeah, I think, you know, as a kid, you're, you're drawn to the covers, aren't you? That, I mean, like you said, in that pre-internet era, that was the way that you would capture attention. You've got to stand yeah, out on the shelf. Either that or word of mouth or 
people writing about them in magazines, but in the first couple of years, we didn't get any coverage in magazines because we weren't advertising. So the editors weren't interested in giving us any editorial space. Well, which were the most important platforms for Mastertronic? Well, Spectrum. Spectrum and C64 uh, to start with. The C16, funnily enough, took off because we took an interest in it when hardly anybody else did. Yeah. So we, we had amazing sales on the C16 for a couple of years before other people woke up to it. And of course, by then it was probably dying as a machine anyway. Um, we dabbled with everything that we thought we could make money off. So we had a couple of releases for the Dragon, uh, which didn't sell. We had two or three for the Electron, which weren't terribly exciting. You know, you, you, whatever came along, came along you thought was going to be good, you had to invest in it because you didn't know. And you, know, you thought MSX was going to be huge, and it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, like today you bring a game out, you only need to get it on like, what, two or three platforms, yeah. really. But back then, I mean, was it a challenge having so many different platforms? No, no, it was, uh, we, we rapidly found people who were really good at converting them. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, Spectrum and Amstrad were very similar, mm. same chip anyway. Um, the real problem, I suppose, with converting is that if you have a game written for C64, it probably looks better than can be reproduced on the Spectrum. So very often they had to be recoded or redesigned, and you actually got two different games. You know, if you saw that game on your friend's C64 and then you went, rushed out to buy it for the Spectrum, you'd get something different. I always remember seeing the screenshots on the back of boxes and then, you know, they'd look amazing and then uh, you get it home and put it in your Commodore 16 and then you notice the... Well, yeah, but that was your fault for buying your Commodore 16 with respect. That's the trouble. If you read the letters pages, I've done a lot of research reading the magazines in order to get the history, and the letters pages are full of letters from people who always start out, Dear Sir, I am the proud owner of, insert name of my machine here. And you couldn't get it across to people that... They really, you know, being proud of a machine that wasn't a particularly good spec was, was a, a false path. But if you wanted to enjoy this hobby, and bear in mind all the games were the same price, you should get the best machine you could get. And we used to have these, you know, these furious arguments that still go on between Spectrum and, and C64 owners as to which is the best computer. And I've seen, you know, Spectrum games and the C64 games. There's no arguing about it in my mind. I bought C64 just before I started Mastertronic based on the reviews, and I used to play the games, and it was obviously a better machine. <laughs> well, we're going to get some tweets now. I'm sure I've offended everybody <laughs> now, but, you know. But they also had the disclaimer on the, on the game boxes as well, didn't they? Screenshots may vary. They vary, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. I'm afraid that that's the reality of it. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, we, the inlay, you don't want to start mucking around with lots of different designs for inlays. You, you need to get the inlay off to the printers, and they print. The more they can print of any one type of inlay, the cheaper it is. So you, you use the same screenshots. Well, what was the general atmosphere like at Mastertronic then? Was it, was it a fun place to work? It could be fun. It could be awful, uh, depending on whether things were going well or not. Um, there, there was no corporate culture. I, I had worked previously for a very large American company with something like 30,000 employees worldwide, and I didn't like it. I wanted to be close to the way the decisions were made. And when I went to Mastertronic, I reported direct to the boss. And we all sat together in one room, and when we moved, our main offices, when we moved to Paul Street in the city, which we were there for about three years, um, I, had, I had the only office when we moved in. Everybody else worked in an open plan office. And the reason I had an office was because I was doing confidential stuff like payroll, and I was the company secretary, and they said they wanted me to have somewhere where I could get a bit of privacy. But the other side of the partition was where uh, Frank Herman and Martin Alper and Alan Sharon sat. And... It was very, you know, it was very free and easy. And people visiting us would come in through the front door, and, and that was it. They're into the main room, and they'd see everybody. 
So you knew everything that was going on. Um, and if people wanted to have a private meeting, they would either go outside to you know, go to the cafe next door, or I'd, sometimes I'd be asked to leave my office so that Frank could have a quiet chat with somebody. But you had the feel of all the time of, of what was happening in the business, which was really nice. And obviously I was doing the accounts, so I saw everything that was going on from the business point of view. But there were times if thing, things went wrong, um, Frank Herman in particular had a real temper. He'd come into the office, he'd go bright red, and he'd bang on the, the, the table and shout at people. The fact that their games were cheap as well, and were there any times when the finances were kind of a bit close to the knuckle? And did they were it, did always it close to the knuckle, mm. even though we were making profits. We were always short of cash. We had a couple of problems. One was that we, had, um, we were constantly investing in stock in particular, and we had a lot of stock out with our customers. We also had subsidiaries in, or uh, joint ventures in France and Germany, and we'd given them a lot of stock, and these guys didn't always pay us on time, so we had very high debtors. Um, if you made a profit, you had to pay corporation tax, but just because you made a profit didn't mean you had the cash, so that was a problem, and there was more than one occasion that we had to go to the tax man and plead for more time to pay, because we, we just didn't have the money. We had an overdraft, and no sooner did we get money in, then people would go out and spend it on something stupid like buying Melbourne House. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was always a battle. Um, but, you know, the, the actual profitability, the sales figures were good, but, but turning that into cash was a bit of a struggle. I was going to ask about the uh, Melbourne House um, acquisitions. That was 1987. I mean, that kind of come cheap. It's difficult to explain what happened. I, I was, um, first of all, the background is we had been dedicated to budget games. And people, used to, you know, we used to say in the office, we would never do anything other than budget games. We were not interested in full price games. We used to have scorn for people who bought full-price games because why should they pay 9.99, which would become the going rate for a decent game, when they could get five of our games for the same price? And then um, I think I was in America because they were just setting up Mastertronic um, USA in California, and I was at a meeting, and, and Frank Herman sort of turned to me and said, by the way, he said, Anthony, oh, well, he used to call me Tony. Tony, I've got something to tell you. You know, we're going to buy, or we're negotiating to buy Melbourne House. And I was kind of gobsmacked because I knew about you know, who Melbourne House were. Mm. They had a terrific reputation. And he got out an envelope and he said, it's all right. He said, look, here's the number of releases I think we can make each year. Here is the number of sales we can make each year for each title. And here is the gross profit on each title. Add that up, multiply that by five years, and that gives you, you know, a value for the company. And that's less than what I expect to pay. So that was his justification for it. Unfortunately, we never released the titles. We didn't achieve the sales volume and we probably didn't make the gross profit. So it was a terrible decision. Well, who were your main competitors? Um, well, in the budget field, once they got going, I suppose Firebird and then Codemasters hmm. and a variety of other budget producers once people realised they could make money out of budget, which took a lot of people time. So most of our competitors probably didn't get going until 1987 or later. Um, for example, there was a very big uh, full-price distributor a publisher called U.S. Gold, and we'd done a deal with them to, to release some of their stuff on our, one of our budget labels, I think Americana, and not long after that, our, one of our sales managers left to join U.S. Gold and set up their budget label, which I think was called Kix, K-I-X-X. But that was, you know, 87 or 88. It was quite late on in the, in the game. So round about then, everybody was getting into budget, and it, it did affect us a lot. Our sales volume started to go down. 
Because I know Mastertronic did have, you know, kind of spin-off labels, obviously. I mean, Mad is the one that comes yeah. instantly to mind. I mean, what was kind of the, the process between deciding if a game should go on the standard 199 range or oh, be at this higher? Point? Yeah, Mad games were meant to, be, meant to be better. They were the games that, that people we enjoyed playing more. We thought had more depth. Um, but the decision was really down to um, the, the head of publishing, whoever, you know, people who actually reviewed the games when they came in and decided how much work should be done on them. And there were times that a game would be given to us and we'd think, yeah, we'll publish that. And the guy, the author was still faffing around with it. We might say, look, just finish it. Doesn't matter how it ends. We'll just put it out as it is as a 199. Mm. If it was a better game, we would want it completed and polished. I think the first Mad Game was um, the last V8. That I remember my brother having that on the Commodore 64. And yeah. we, we just leave it playing for that Rob Hubbard music. So I know, uh, yes, yeah. I, I, I tried playing it and I always <laughs> crashed the car, so I gave up. I much preferred the um, Richard Darling's Master of Magic. I thought that was really good. Well, then you had the, uh, the Mastertronic Plus range and um, Arcadia as well. I mean, all these kind of different sub-labels that came along. I mean, did that kind of dilute the main no, message? Was no, it? a label, a label is, just a, is just a way of... Uh, I don't even know why we bothered with some of the labels. Mm. It doesn't make any difference. Um, the, the pricing doesn't change. The profitability doesn't change. It's, it's just... It gives you a slight differentiation. Uh, there, there was a, probably one very good reason, which was in some shops we were the only supplier. So, for example, like Toys R Us, where for a, for a period we, we had a deal with them where we merchandised the stock, which meant we sent our own people in who put the, the tapes out onto the racks and took away the ones that weren't selling. So we provided that as a service to Toys R Us, so it was worth it because of the volume of business. But by having different labels, it made it look as though there was a bit of variety. I suppose that was, the, that was one of the thoughts. Last week on this show, we were talking to the CEO of a company called Tectoy in Brazil. Um, who still distribute Sega products out there, like the Mega Drive and the Master System. And yeah. I know in the UK, um, Mastertronic was actually the distributor for the Sega yeah. Master System. I mean, how did that deal come around with Sega and being the distributor for that Master System console? Okay, well, Areola Soft had the, were, were the dealers in 1986. They had the UK um, license. And I don't think they'd done terribly well. And Sega had said, announced, I think they'd announced it publicly, that they were taking it away from them. So I think Frank Ehrman got in touch with Sega and said, how about giving us a go? And it just happened. It happened almost overnight. Suddenly we were the, we were the distributors in 1987. Um, but the, it was a funny business because most of the master, the, yes, master systems that were coming in had already been sold by Sega directly to people like Dixon's. So all we did was act as intermediaries and try and market it and, and in terms of promoting the games. But we didn't have a lot of say in who got what. Later on, when, or in following years, when they had more confidence in us and we took over the business, um, it was an interesting battle because it never, we never got enough stock. They always sent the, uh, both the new games and the new machines, first to Japan and then to America. And Europe always came last. And we used to have, you know, try to allocate which of our customers were going to get the, the batches of the machines that were coming in. But it wasn't something I was involved with. I think the fact that it was called the, the Master System as well, that was quite a good coincidence. I remember kids at school would be a bit confused sometimes and some kids saying it was like, you know, Mastertronics console because it was called the Master System. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, pure coincidence. <laughs> Just like nothing to do with us. But then, I mean, the Master System did have, you know, a pretty decent um, you know, fortune in the UK. I know in America oh, it yeah. wasn't a big, big system, but over here it was. Yeah, it was, it was very successful and I think it was helped by our marketing and it was helped also by our distribution because we, at that point we had our own distribution um, network. We had a warehouse a dedicated staff, which I don't think any other computer games publisher had. They all, all the others relied on wholesalers. 
so we could determine who's how you know how our stock was going to be treated when it went to a warehouse and we could make sure that it was packaged correctly and we could sit on the delivery times and make sure that that what priority customers got their stuff as quickly as possible and in some cases pallets of of um new machines particularly when when the mega drive came out the pallets would come in they'd be flown into heathrow and straight out to the customer they wouldn't even see our warehouse because the demand you know was so enormous when when that came out and that was that again was one of the sort of hidden strengths of mastertronic that that we had it because we could distribute our own or control our distribution which other people couldn't do we could get the goods out to our customers much quicker another thing you had um, in house as well was um, your own magazine tronics i mean have you got any memories of of that yes it was terrible uh, <laughs> i've got one copy of what I think was the last issue, and I should have kept the others, but it was it was a pain in the neck. It's a funny thing, um, you know, when you see it from the other side. Nobody particularly wanted to produce this thing. Somebody had come up with the idea of having a fan club, and so it was advertised in magazines, and if you joined up and sent us a couple of quid, I think you got a game and you got a pen, and, and then we promised that we'd send out this magazine. But nobody in the company wanted to spend any time producing it, because, you know, if you can have a magazine, somebody's actually got to write the damn thing. Yeah, it's a lot of work. And it inevitably fell on, on the PR people, which was my, my poor colleague, Alison, who I don't think particularly wanted to do it. Uh, so after a time, I think I just decided it wasn't worth it. It, wasn't, it didn't really make any difference to our sales. Um, and it wasn't, I don't know if it generated enough interest. I'm so, I'm afraid we must have disappointed many kids who might have looked forward to receiving it. It seemed like a good idea at the time, though. Lots of things. It's amazing how many things seem like. I mean, you know, the budget games are a success, and against that, we have we have lots of failures, um, which you you know you just sort of sweep under the carpet and walk on. Well, what was it like when Virgin became involved? It was um, oh, it's awkward. It's awkward for me personally because I didn't want to work for a large company. And the first thing that Virgin did when they came in was was accountants came in. We were we were shoved into the Virgin Vision division. The Virgin Vision made videos. And they didn't understand computer games. And they sent in people from their head office of Virgin Vision. And the first thing they said to me was, where's your accounts pack? And what they wanted to see was 50 pages of numbers every month detailing everything about the business. And I used to produce a couple of pages and give them to Frank. And he'd look at them and say, yeah, it looks all right. And then we would carry on. You know? So that was a shock. I didn't, I didn't like that culture. And they didn't think I was a very good accountant because I wasn't producing reams and reams of paperwork. So we didn't get on. Um, as far as the business was concerned, well, they, they wanted to, to absorb us, so they, they moved us across to Virgin Games, and we had a rather strange marriage with Virgin Games. And Virgin Games at the time was um, more traditional. It did have half a dozen full-time programmers who were knocking out their own product, but they also sold other people's titles, and they only did full price. So there was a bit of synergy that we could start selling old Virgin titles as budget, but the, the, the two companies were quite different, and... The only thing I believe that really Virgin wanted was Sega. I don't think they were really bothered about Mastertronic. They right. could see some potential, but they wanted the Sega business because um, I think there's a bit in Richard Branson's book where he said he, he, his kids had, had seen these consoles and were quite excited by them. So they got us, which gave them the distribution, which gave them a European network, and they set up um, various subsidiaries. We had very quickly we moved towards you know the, an organisation called Sega Europe which had distributors in several European countries, and that was about the time that Sega itself bought the whole Sega business back in-house. And I guess the fact that Virgin had, like, you know, did, did their own games in-house was yes. a different kind of culture to... Completely different. I mean, they, were, they, they had their own little office at the front of the building, and I used to pop my head around the door occasionally and have a chat with them, because, 
you know, I, so I still enjoyed playing games. And very often, that, so very often, occasionally, they would give me something they were working on and say, would I mind testing it? So, um, I mean, for example, there was a, we, they brought out a fabulous PC adventure game called Wonderland. And they gave, they gave me an early copy of that and said, you know, would I test it on the PC? Because we didn't have any PCs. The PCs were fairly new in those days. I had an Amstrad for business use. And I'd also bought myself one for work, for, you know, to use at home. So I tested it on that. That was, that was uh, quite fun. Well, the 16-bit machines came along as we got towards the yes, end they of did, the but they were. But the, the Atari and the Amiga were one mm. thing. The PC was graphics were terrible in the early years. You couldn't play games on them. Yeah, and that PC uh, bleepy sound that was built Yeah, everything <laughs> about it in, in the early 80s. So useful for business. Mm. Um, and I was starting to develop some quite sophisticated models of things and using database programs on PC, but you couldn't play games on them. Well, when the ST and the Amiga did come out, I mean, did that kind of... Uh, was, was that difficult to respond to yes, from us? I think, it, I think it was. Hmm. Well, we saw, everybody saw it coming. It wasn't a surprise. Uh, but we didn't quite know how to respond because obviously the biggest problem was what price would our games be? And they were going to be on disc. And we knew that the sales wouldn't be so high, so it wouldn't be the same sort of business. And there was considerable debate as to what sort of price range before we settled, I think, on 4.99 to start with. Um, but the problem with the 16-bit games is the volume was never there. It just took you know, a long time, I think, for the, for the, mass, for the critical mass of, of installed machines to grow to a point that you could release a new title and it would sell comfortably enough for you to make money. And in the early years, it, that wasn't happening. And, yeah. of course, it was more expensive to develop the games, so we were paying more up front to the programmers. So we were a bit of a bind on that, and I don't think Mastertronic ever got it right. Yeah, I was going to say, because obviously they've got more memory, more capabilities. So oh, yeah, the yeah exactly. Are. People expected a much higher standard. Hmm. We, uh, this, again, there's a, a cultural problem here with our own uh, directors who didn't really understand that because they didn't play games. And they weren't interested in the games as such. They only saw them as products. So they didn't get that the 16-bit games market was a different sort of market to the Spectrum C64 market. And I think that, that hampered us. I don't think it would make any difference in the long run because it never really was a budget market anyway. And, uh, you know, on the Amiga, I remember games were like, you know, around the 25 quid mark for like yeah. the, the big titles. Well, yes. I mean, even now, now they're, what, 49 quid for yeah. PC games, which is, which is, you know, frankly astonishing, but uh, you understand it when you play them. And, and at the same time, we had this, the, the other tie-up we were, we were working on was this Arcadia project, which I think you mentioned in your question. Yeah. And as you know, Arcadia was going to be um, amusement arcade machines with an Amiga in the works that would play will have the capability to play up, up to 10 different games, and the user would select which one they wanted to play. And we thought that was brilliant, because we thought that they'll be terribly popular, and obviously this, that it's the Amiga, so we could put the same games out and sell them as Mastertronic games. And what they found was that users in amusement arcades didn't like it. They wanted a dedicated arcade machine, where all the graphics on the, uh, on the outside of the machine were about the game they were playing. And they, you know, they wanted the artwork, they wanted the colours, they, they didn't want this boring old Arcadia machine where the first thing you had to do was select a game from a menu. The other problem we had with that was that the actual quality of the games that we put on them was not very good. Hmm. Because instead of getting arcade game designers to do games, we got computer game designers. And they, they didn't think in the same way. So we had some perfectly good computer games, but when you put them on arcade, they just weren't impressive. Yeah, cause a lot of those arcade games came from like, Japan and America, didn't they? Well, Japan, yes, yeah. exactly. And, they, and, and by then, you know, you've got these dedicated teams of programmers. And, of course, in, a, in, a, in an amusement arcade machine, you have a dedicated chip. But we were relying on the Amiga, so Amiga had to do everything. And there were some things, I, I guess, that it just couldn't do. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't I'm not really involved in that side. But I only saw 
the the results. They they we had a, you know, one of these machines in our office, and they used to show us the demos. And um, some of my colleagues used to get excited by seeing these things, and I I was never excited. I thought they were terrible. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, any of the stuff we did at the time. We had a game called Road Wars, which they were really thought was really fabulous. And it was you sort of had a rotating Earth, and you had some sort of spaceship was flying over it and you had to shoot everything. I thought it was absolutely awful and it, it never sold. And we had a couple of nice ones, a couple of nice shoot-em-ups in particular, like uh, Sidewinder and Xenon. But they were really designed for, you know, for, for home computers, not for arcade machines. Did you have to bite your tongue a bit or could, did you just come out and say they weren't very good? Um, I used to say they weren't very good, but nobody was interested in what I said because I was only an accountant anyway. Right. <laughs> no, it, by that point in time, all the, those decisions on what games were being done for Arcadia were being taken in the States. Mm-hmm. Mastertronic Inc. Martin Alper had gone to California to run that company, and he ran it pretty well independently of the UK operation. And he wasn't a programmer, and he didn't play the games, so he didn't know or care. I remember at school the um, the playground piracy scene was a big thing. You know, people had, when they figured out their mum's um, mm. cassette duplicator could uh, copy computer games as well. But I mean, did that even affect Mastertronic? I mean, having these low one ninety nine games. I mean, was piracy an issue? We assume it was, but we had no way of knowing. Mm. I mean, you know, if you sell ten games to a newsagent, and as it happens, some kid goes in and buys them and makes ten copies for his mates, we're not going to know. Um, you know, and I think probably you're right that, that because they were cheap enough and maybe people like to collect them and have the original inlay cards and that sort of thing, so maybe it was that worked in our favour. It was like it was something, it was a problem that was like kind of in the background, but we couldn't do anything about it. And as long as the company was making money, you didn't really mind. Well, you did mind, but you couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> well, when did sales start to decline then? Was that when the 16 bit machines kind of came in? Did it rapidly kind of fall? We, yeah. Um, Partly that, and partly with the competition. Uh, Codemasters, you know, did extremely well when they started. And some of the other large companies, as I said, our full-price competitors began to set up their own budget labels. And after, we had about five years of a mature computer games market anyway. So the amount of back catalogue that everybody had, which could go out on budget, was, was enormous. And that begins to make it difficult, you know, for everybody to make money. And I think loads of companies began to go out of the business hmm. uh, at that time. We're talking about... I don't know, 1988, 1989, and uh, we stuck it out, and those other people stuck it out, but and I I wasn't really involved directly in it at that point, so I can't be authoritative as to what was happening. It's more an impression. I was working for much more on the Sega side of the business. So I was working for for Virgin Mastertronic, and almost out of the blue, because I wasn't involved in it, we suddenly heard that Sega wanted to buy the Sega part of the business. And the Sega part of the business by then, which is 1990, was you know, 90% or more of the business in terms of both the sales and perhaps the number of people working for the company. So they took over all of that, left Virgin Games as a stub, and Virgin Games, very soon after that, moved to, be, to join with Mastertronic Inc. and, and uh, become Virgin Interactive. Um, so the deal that, that took place when Sega bought us was that they <clears throat> they took over Virgin Games. They, they uh, Nick Alexander, who had been running Virgin Mastertronic, joined Sega Europe, as did Frank Herman and as did Alan Sharon. They were the, the three directors. But Martin Alper wasn't interested. He wanted to do his own thing, so he stayed with Mastertronic in America, and then became head of, of Virgin's games division in America. And there are some very interesting comments about Martin Alper which you can find on the internet from people who worked with him, 
who say exactly what I say, which was that he had no interest in the games whatsoever. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, looking online for stuff about Mastertronic, I mean, bizarrely, because it, you know, it was such a big company and so influential, I mean, there's not a, a lot written about it these days. No, but I know not you, now. Um, yeah. No. I, I, when I wrote my history of the company, I trawled through as many magazines as I could find. Yeah. And I was, and there were hundreds and hundreds of them. And obviously all our games got reviewed, but the amount of editorial coverage on the company itself is very limited. Um, there was only one trade newspaper, which was called Computer Trade Weekly, which would have had a lot on the background. Unfortunately, it's not online. And the biggest mistake I ever made when I left the company was not taking the back issues with me, because that was a goldmine of information. Um, but no, there isn't, there isn't a lot to be found now. I've, I've done as much research as I can to get the history up to date, and I've kind of reached the end of a lot of dead ends. Yeah, I don't got... even know what's happened to some of the people who work for the company. Well, you've got a fantastic website, haven't you, with, with a lot of information on that? Thank you very much, yes. Well, I've spent many years doing it. I started doing it 20 years ago. What's the address if people want to check it out? It's, it's guter.org slash mastertronic. And I'll put that in our show notes as well. I mean, are you still in touch with any people from back then? Um, not really very much now. Unfortunately, the, the three directors, Martin Alpert, Alan Sharon, and Frank Herman, all died. Uh, Alan died a few years ago, and there was a, a big, um, not a party, a wake, I suppose, was held for him. And he, a lot of people got together then, people I hadn't seen for years and years. And because I was writing the history myself for the website, I got in touch with a couple of people behind the scenes who had been involved when the company had started. Um, but that was just to get information. And so if you mean on social level, no, I think that's all, that's all finished. We've all gone our separate ways. And there is quite, a, quite an active um, collectors group on Facebook that I see you're a member of as well. You're talking there sometimes. Yes. Um, yes, I joined that because of the doomed Kickstarter attempt to create a book on all Mastertronics mm-hmm. uh, games. And I was involved with the guy who was, who was doing that project for a while, assisting him. Uh, but that's come to nothing. But the, the collectors group is quite fun. Well, it is great that you have, you know, made this effort to to document what happened at the company and the the story of it as well, because it was, you know, I think a lot of people, pretty much anyone that was into video games in Britain in the 80s will have really fond memories of Mastertronic. I'd like to think so, but I mean, most of our games, to be fair, were not that good. It was just because they were cheap. They were were worth having. But I I used to uh, play everything I could on the C64. Mm. And in the end, there are only half a dozen, perhaps, that I used to come back to. Just a bit sad. <laughs> As a kid, just getting a new game was exciting. Though, yeah. So you know, the, the fact that we, you could get them into into the hands of kids was uh, was fantastic. I think so. Yeah, but you you know you'd start playing and your character would walk across the screen and you'd be killed. And then you'd start playing again and then you'd be killed at the same place and then you'd try a different place and you get killed and it was a game over. And they used to drive me up the wall. Yeah, that was the last V8, wasn't it? Yeah, that was well, they all did one, that. Yeah. Almost every game they gave you three lives and made it really hard to to learn how to play them. Well, Auntie, it's been wonderful getting these stories about Mastertronic. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Pleasure.